Welcome to The Water Table, the podcast that floats slowly, spreads widely, and sinks deeply into conversations about the human relationship with land, water, and community. I'm your host, Pete Deneen. On the podcast today, our guest is Debbie Franco. Debbie is the Senior Advisor for Water and Rural Affairs in Governor Newsom's Office of Planning and Research for the state of California. She works on a range of issues, including water, equity, and forest-related economic development, and is also a member of the Forest Management Task Force. Before joining the governor's office, Debbie served as the policy director at the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Debbie is with us today sharing her personal thoughts and reflections on a conversation we had with Brad Lancaster, an expert in the field of rainwater harvesting and water management. Debbie, welcome to the water table. Thank you. Debbie, can you describe where we are in California with regard to how we use and manage our water? Well, California is what it is because of how humans use water. We harnessed it first to support widespread mining operations and later to support urban centers and to grow food. It's not an overstatement to say that California wouldn't be the state it is without the ingenuity and determination of the late 1800s and 1900s. I do want to acknowledge, though, that change that dramatic change in the landscape, particularly as it relates to how humans interacted with land and water, came at great cost, the cost of thousands of indigenous lives. Many Californians are still unaware that immigrants to this state actively forced indigenous peoples out of their homes, and the state even had a bounty on Indian heads. I, for one, was entirely shocked when I learned that. And I was in my 30s, the first time I ever heard it. Many indigenous tribes and communities continue to struggle to gain access to the resources they need to be who they are, including their ancestral land and water resources that are essential to supporting their cultural practices and subsistence. Their culture and life way are inextricably linked to their place of origin. I really appreciate the opportunity to mention this because I believe that California tribes have a whole lot to teach us about how to survive climate change in this place. And our survival has a lot to do with how we treat our land and water. They have thousands of years of knowledge and expertise. I don't think we have the time it would take to catch up with them. California's vast water infrastructure is a human marvel, but it's also fragmented in how we've managed it. And it doesn't actually respect jurisdictional boundaries. Ultimately, it's intimately related to the places that it flows. In fact, it's a resource that we are inextricable from as it flows through each and every one of us and is what makes us possible on this planet. I'd say we have some room to shift toward a better balance between our desire to master our water resources and the opportunity to work in concert with one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Last year, the California State Water Resources Control Board issued a report that found that more than one in 10 people in a dozen California counties lacked access to safe drinking water. In Tuolumne County, one of the areas where we're focused, that rate was nearly 66 residents in every thousand. Debbie, you have a strong background in environmental justice. How does water equity figure into the current social justice discourse? Well, as I just mentioned, the injustice started in California at first contact. Uh, tribes were forced off their land and their rivers and streams and springs they depend on were diverted to other uses. When I first started working at the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water, I had no idea 
like many Californians, that there were people in California who didn't have access to safe drinking water. I was lucky I grew up in the Bay Area drinking pristine McCallamy River water. We've made some strides, but assuring access to safe drinking water is still a work in progress and a high priority in this administration. There are also injustices in how water was developed in California, which I came into close contact with when we were responding to the drought. Uh, the obvious and well-known example is the public trust case in Mona Lake, but the dynamic continues to play out even today. Um, the one example that I share with folks when I talk to them about this regional inequity is uh, how Tuolumne County was impacted by the last drought. Right out of the gate, they knew they were likely to have water shortages and had 50% mandatory water rationing. While at the same time, Tuolumne River flowed through all of their communities past them into San Francisco, who at the time had, in quotation marks, plenty of water. Uh, so we have a lot of opportunity, I think, in the state of California to really ask ourselves what equity looks like when it comes to our water resources. We have uh, people who are on domestic wells, and there's really not a safety net for them. They also suffered mightily in the, in the drought. And we, again, have made some, some strides. Some of those communities now have been consolidated and will have more reliable water in the future, but we have many more people still out there who are at risk every day. To me, in a state like California, with such abundance, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that we find a way to assure that everyone has enough water to provide for their basic needs, including the cultural and subsistence needs of our tribes. It's interesting, the role water plays in social justice isn't always readily apparent. Like, there's this guy out in the Sonoran Desert in the city of Tucson, Arizona. His name is Brad Lancaster, who has written a couple books on rainwater harvesting. In a recent interview, he described how this bleak street in his neighborhood was transformed by capturing rainwater. Let's listen. In my neighborhood, on my block, when we started, um, there were desolate solar baked barren streetscapes and uh um we moved there because it was affordable and uh not only was it affordable it was centrally located so we knew we could get around by bike we didn't have to rely on the automobile but we went right to work along with our neighbors um trying to bring more life into it and uh by planting the rain planting indigenous multi-use food bearing and so on vegetation um now, what used to be Bleak Street uh, is known as the Canopy Street, you know, the Food Forest Street. And it's not just the street, it's the neighborhood. So this neighborhood that used to have a reputation for um, high crime, high drug use, uh, cut through, hit and run traffic, um, now is known to be one of the greenest uh, neighborhoods in town. I love that. I think what I like about it so much is that if you're someone visiting Brad's neighborhood in Tucson, which he describes as this kind of solar-baked hardscape with high traffic speed and hit-and-run accidents, some drug use and crime, is that it's not exactly obvious that a change in the relationship with water is the solution. And so he gets to work harvesting rainwater, building traffic-calming chicanes, and creating understory vegetation that gives the street a, a sense of, of, of uh, intimacy, of closeness. And not just that, but in the process of doing so, he creates 
a community with his neighborhood who learned to work together and rely on one another. So it was both the more lively and vegetated environment, which enhanced the, the verdance and vibrancy of the neighborhood, but also this, the sense of community and coming together that magnified the positive change. Debbie, how do we connect folks to this idea that societal wellness really hinges on, on our relationship with land and water? Well, I think it's exactly what Brad did. Uh, he started at home. I mean, people, we forget, like I grew up in the Bay Area. I never thought about where my water came from. It came out, it was crystal clear, tasted great. Um, it took me a long time to learn the the importance in my actual relationship to water. Um, Brad might've started with rainwater, but ultimately his project grew into a total shift in the way the humans in that neighborhood interact with and live with their land and water. I think it's actually what we need people to understand and to be connected to. I mean, it's, it's fundamental. Um, and, and it's, it's, this is an interesting moment in history where people are already in this headspace right now. So many people are planting gardens in their backyard. All of a sudden they have to pay attention to how to irrigate and when, and what kind of mulch to add to the soil. This is a great opportunity to bring even more people back into that direct connectedness to land and water. Brad gave us a really eloquent whole of system description of the benefits of rainwater harvesting. Let's listen. I think most everyone wants a uh, a lush, verdant environment in which they live. But where we took it a different way, it's, well, the way we're going to get that is not by importing or extracting water from others. We're going to use the free on-site waters we already have. So this is not only going to improve our life, but everyone else, because we won't be taking from anyone else, including the wildlife. Uh, and instead of bringing in plants from elsewhere, we're going to use the plants of here. And that's dramatically going to improve the quality of life for the, the native wildlife of this place. Um, that was the big shift. And we've since taken it another step further. So we are not going to fertilize with imported or extracted nutrients. We're going to use the free nutrients of this place. So by creating these uh, basins, these, these rain gardens, these water harvesting earthworks, they're bowl-like shapes that collect not just the rain and the street runoff, but they collect the leaf drop, the bird poop drop, the birds hanging out in that vegetation, the seed, um, the leaf drop and everything that's on the street that flows in with the street runoff. So um, we're dramatically increasing the organic matter um, and the habitat for soil life and soil microorganisms so, and then we're getting more mycorrhizal fungi whose hyphae or hair-like roots fuse with the roots of the photosynthesizing plants. So the fungus gives the plants water and uh, minerals, whereas the plants give the fungi uh, sugars from their photosynthesis. So it's this wonderful collaborative arrangement that can inspire us to collaborate with neighbors and so on. But it also dramatically increases how much more moisture that we've now harvested can be uptaken by the life because they're collaborating uh, and there's more of that life that can collaborate thanks to collecting organic matter as well as water. There's just so much here. Brad's description of the collaborative arrangement between moisture, soil, and life is beautiful. It feels particularly well suited for California's water system 
where many parts of the state import water from faraway places. And as some Western communities begin to feel water scarcity, the impulse seems to be bring in more water rather than let's look at how we're currently using water and find ways to use that water again and be even more efficient. Gosh, I suspect that many urban communities, folks who might be out there listening right now, who've invested a great deal of money in recycling their water would disagree with you on the idea that it's an either or. I think they're trying to do both. In addition to recycling, most agencies have invested in encouraging indoor water use efficiency, and we have plumbing codes in the state that require certain levels of efficiency in all of our indoor fixtures. I actually see a huge range of opportunities right where Brad works, and that's in our outdoor landscaping. How we manage water on our landscape, and even more important, how we do it with a holistic view of our homes, neighborhoods, communities, and ultimately how we get to watershed scale. I think we've got so much space to work there together and to build the same kind of organic collaborative space that I love um, in, in Brad's words. Brad talks about the need for whole of community involvement. Let's listen. No tree is planted unless we first plant the rain. We knew we had to re-spongify, re-vegetate, re-enliven the watershed. And you cannot do watershed scale work if it's private. (laughs) You got to get everyone involved. Debbie, you've said before that collaboration is the most crucial tool to achieve water resilience. What do you see as the biggest challenge to community-wide involvement with water in arid regions like California? First, I'd say California is not actually an arid state. We're actually very fortunate to have plentiful water resources, though we do have arid regions of the state. When I first entered the water space, I one of my favorite people was a woman named Dorothy Green. She was a local LA activist, super thoughtful. She would say, we have enough water in California, just not enough to waste. I so wish I could emulate her voice. It's such a simple concept, but in the context of water where everything seems like con and not enough. It was such an impactful statement. Water is like any other resource. Without core values, you end up with inequities. Take money, for example. We have enough money in California to feed, clothe, shelter, and provide safe water to everyone. It's a matter of how the dollars flow. Water is similar. We have enough water in the state for everyone to have their basic needs met. We even have enough for our ecosystems to thrive and to provide for food for for people in California and elsewhere. We just don't have the systems in place that reflect that value set and that allows for imbalances and ultimately inequities. Collaboration and establishing core values is really key to assuring that we're not, quote, wasting water, as Dorothy would say. I think the best place to start is locally, like Brad did. It's phenomenal that he started with rainwater and ended up transforming his entire community. He doesn't talk a lot about it, but I bet there was a thread of core values shared across the community that underpinned all the the projects that they did together. I bet it was one set and one vision to begin, and I bet it grew over time. I mean, that's the beauty of real-time interactions and collaboration. The great thing about doing it at that local scale is that you start with your neighbors. These are people you're going to see regularly. You're going to see them at the grocery store. Your kids might go to school together. 
And that makes it harder to pull apart. It's it's different at the larger scale where you go to a meeting and then you're going to go home and you're probably not going to see all those people you saw at the meeting in between. And it, and that makes it easier. It creates fewer incentives um, to, to actually pull together, to actually find common values and a common path together. You're, sometimes you show up and it's your job to hold the line versus if you're a bunch of neighbors who are working toward something you all care about. It's good to know though, that we do have kernels of collaboration already in California. We have IRWMs, Integrated Regional Water Management Plans. There are IRWMs around the state doing really excellent work. We have tribes who are creating collaboratives with non-tribal folks to work toward managing their ancestral lands. We have forest collaboratives of NGOs and community members and businesses and others all trying to to, to collaboratively manage their uh, local landscapes. We have neighborhood-wide permaculture and gray water efforts. All of those are nodes. And to me, the opportunity at hand is figuring out how we knit those together to get to watershed scale. Climate projections for California suggest an increase in climate whiplash. The idea that the region will experience longer, deeper droughts interspersed with wetter wet periods. Brad talks about the need to mitigate these swings by slowing the draining of runoff from the watershed. Let's listen. So by doing all this, we can enable our creeks, our rivers to flow more consistently than they did in the past. Because instead of this crazy, very short-term flood-inducing pulse of water, um, when water is just being rapidly drained off a site and we get these spike flood flows, we are dramatically slowing down the release of the water from the watershed and the sites in Tucson. We're banking it in the soil and the vegetation and the life. So the release of that water, the surplus, is much slower, much longer into the dry season. So we have these longer, more resilient and dependable uh, water flows and much less of the spike damaging flood flows. And I mean, that's just, so it's not a new water. It's just, it's the same water, but we're making it go further through more uses, more potentials. Debbie, as the Sierra snowpack diminishes with the warming climate, this feels like an especially important concept for California. That's absolutely right. It's the holy grail of getting to watershed scale. Starting at the top of the watershed, we need to make sure that our systems can capture and retain water in the landscape and the vegetation. The landscape in our forested headwaters, for example, remains disrupted by logging and mining activities. We are doing a phenomenal job increasing pace and scale of uh, doing forest management and thinning our forests. But I have stood in so many places around the state in the last several years, looking at the results of those efforts and seeing beautifully thinned forest, but then asking folks about the land, the, the, the dirt, <laughs> asking folks about what we're going to do to fix the land, because ultimately the, we've got all these historic disruptions that we've never repaired all the way back to the mining operations, um, but even including some of the forest work that's been done in the past and the forest work that's being done in the moment, it disrupts the dirt, frankly. Um, and, and it's interesting, we'll be standing in a big circle of people and mostly people look at me like, what? <laughs> and it's always 
the local folks, the folks who have been working in this place for decades, who will say, yes, there's a spring right over that next rise. And it used to flow and now it's dry. And it's dry because of all the, the sediment that's piled up as we've worked in this space, not just today, but over the many years that we've been working in this place. Or they'll say, you know, we we put these wattles in so that we protect the, the rivers and streams and waterways from any sedimentation from the work we're doing. But the sedimentation continues after we leave and we don't really have a strategy for maintaining these uh, diversions. And practically, it might be helpful if we actually restored the landscape. Um, but all of that impacts how spongy the place can be. There are also instances where folks have been uh, gotten a contract to thin an area and I'll be standing with them and they'll say, well, we did, you know, we succeeded, we thinned, but practically this was a high mountain meadow. Probably we should have cleared it. <laughs> and then it would have been an even spongier place. We, we really do need to find a way to, to think about all of this as, as a system. And, and you can't just go in and fix one thing. You actually have to see it as a system and fix all the pieces. And foundationally, the motto, slow it, spread it, sink it, it should persist from the headwaters to the ocean. And we have some really promising activities, particularly activities happening in the Central Valley right now. We have NGOs, academics, um, and others who are collaborating with farmers to figure out which crops can be inundated during what parts of the growth cycle um, and still thrive. Uh, DWR, the Department of Water Resources, has a program called FloodMar. It's designed to create tools and encourage managed aquifer recharge during times of high water flow. It has to happen at that scale and all the way down to the neighborhood and household scale. And, and I really, I, I just love that Brad has, um, he articulates it in such a clear and contextualized way. And hopefully we can figure out how to amplify that and convince people that it's possible to do that at watershed scale. Debbie, do you see this as more of a bottom-up approach? Like parcel by parcel, community by community effort, or more of a top-down state-led type of initiative? Or is there some combination of the approaches? That's a really excellent question. Um, I, I think it's everything and. Uh, I, I love the work that Watershed Progressive does because I think that you can't succeed without a parcel scale analysis that builds to community, that builds to watershed. Like that's the connectivity that we are missing right now. But I also think that we need to, again, to set some common values and that at some point makes most sense to do at a larger scale, perhaps watershed scale, but we should have some common values at state scale too. And those should be directly interrelated with what's going on on the ground. Brad goes into one of the misconceptions we hear about rainwater harvesting, that you're removing water from the system that would otherwise end up in rivers and streams. Okay, so one is you will be taking water away from people downstream, um, and not the case, okay? Because we're basically harvesting the rain that is falling on our site, and pre-development would have infiltrated that site. Okay, now post-development and compaction of it, now there's more runoff than normal. Okay, so by harvesting rainwater, we're going back to normal conditions by keeping that water on site rather than letting it run off. And at the same time, generating 
more evapotranspiring life, cooling the environment, seeding clouds so we can get more uh, rain um, and just making for a much more joyous life spot. Brad has this amazing moment during the interview where he recalls the exact point of his life where he transitioned from being someone who articulated problems to being one who focuses on solutions to problems. After taking a permaculture course, he describes this experience meeting a subsistence farmer in Zimbabwe who had been blacklisted by the government. Brad notices his land is lush and green compared to his neighbors. The man is harvesting rainwater, and then he has this epiphany. He sees himself as this selfish man because he's only providing water for himself and his family and decides that's not the legacy he wants. He wants to help his community. So he starts focusing on earthworks. Let's let Brad tell it. So he, uh, he was literally uh, chained. He had an- chains around his ankles, so he couldn't leave his site. And he, in chains, he is digging swales, digging fruition pits, digging earthworks, creating terraces, all the stuff on his land, because he has to make the most of what he has. He has no other option. Um, and he saw that where water lingers, life grows. Where water drains away, you lose soil, life drains away. So uh, just by observing, he said, okay, I'm gonna mimic what I see naturally working, and I'm gonna try and fix that which is not working. And that's what got him to where he was. And it was amazing for me because It's like, look, there's nothing theoretical about this. That is so profound. It's so powerful when you all of a sudden see things in a different light. When I worked for the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water, I would often walk into rooms of folks who were very much like I had been. They never had to worry about where water came from. Turned on their tap and there it was. I'd start by inviting them to think about their view of the world as looking through one facet of a prism. There is a whole lot of security in keeping that one focus, lots of certainty. It's a little disorienting to shift the prism and look through another facet. It's even more disorienting to try to see through the prism to the rainbow on the other side. But frankly, I don't actually think humans will survive on this planet unless we get much, much better at disorienting ourselves. We're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Many people are grieving the life they have lost, and we should certainly be working toward assuring that everyone has what they need to survive and thrive. Perhaps, though, this is a prime opportunity to look through the prism to the rainbow on the other side. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been truly an enlightening conversation. Yeah, thanks to you, Peter. And again, thank you to the Watershed Progressive for the all-important work you do developing land-based solutions. It has truly been a pleasure. We'd like to acknowledge the Department of Water Resources and the Tuolumne County Resource Conservation District, as well as the residents of California, whose support of Prop 84 made this podcast possible. Thank you to Charles Upton, who recorded the original interview with Brad Lancaster, and to Ryan Evans for editing and mixing. Our theme music was done by Todd Hannigan. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of The Water Table. See you next time.